to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is philosophy professor Michael Humer from the University of Colorado Boulder. Humer has written dozens of academic articles in philosophy, edited a volume on epistemology, and written eight books, including the one we'll discuss today, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, a Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. So welcome to the show today, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll show mine because... Yeah, yours doesn't disappear the way mine does, you know? Yeah, reality is uh, skewed on Mike's end. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I'm a simulated person. That's why weird stuff happens sometimes. <laughs> he definitely passes the Turing test. Uh, listeners might remember that we previously discussed Humor's earlier book, Dialogues on Ethical Vegetarianism, which you can find on my website. Now, a brief note here, parts one and two of the book, in, book at hand are about critical thinking and epistemology. And those are the parts that I want to focus on today because it's a long book and unlike many books you read, it is not filled with fluff and uh, irrelevancies. So there's, you know, what's in the book is meaningful and it's over 300 pages. So it'd be hard to get through everything in the book in a short podcast, unless you want to go for like 24 hours or something. Um, so part three, I'll just notice, note, note though, is about metaphysics, which is largely about God and free will. Part four is about ethics. And I'll note that Mike has written a previous book exclusively on that issue, if you want to learn more about that. So maybe if we can, I can talk him into being on the show again, we can talk more about some of those subjects. However, I'll also note that the next book forthcoming, I think next month, is called Justice Before Law. So if we do another podcast, I want to prioritize that book because I think it's going to be really interesting and really important. So why don't you, before we get into the book, the current book, why don't you just give us a, a brief overview of the new book, Justice Before Law? Yeah, Justice Before the Law. Um, so, you know, the title is slightly a pun because the usual phrase there refers to, you know, just like getting legal justice. But what I have in mind is, you know, people ought to place justice ahead of the law. And so uh, the book, you know, the first half of it talks about the various injustices in the legal system. Uh, this includes, for example, the fact that um, about 97% of cases go to plea bargains um, instead of trial because basically the defendants are blackmailed. They're basically extorted into giving up their right to a trial by being threatened with more charges and things like that. Uh, there's this enormous expense in the system. There are all of these cases where people get grossly disproportionate sentences, you know, like uh, the case of the guy who gets 70 years in prison for stealing a tuna fish sandwich from a Whole Foods market. Hey, that's an actual case. So, all right, you know, not to mention the unjust laws like the drug laws. So there's, okay, so there's a discussion of some of those. And then the second half of the book is about why actors in the justice system should prioritize justice over fidelity to the law. Right, so if you're a jury member, for example, you should vote on the basis of what you think is just, rather than simply on the basis of what the law dictates. But I think the same thing for judges, prosecutors, and lawyers. Yeah, well, maybe at a, just a baseline, they could at least not lie and put people in prison that they have reasonable reason to believe are innocent. So that'd be a good place to start. And then if they could also <laughs> generally pursue justice on top of that, we could, we could really be getting somewhere. 
Um, That's right, yeah. The justice system is probably not as reliable as um, they like to think, right? Like judges and prosecutors think that it's super reliable, but you know, my guess is, uh, you know, probably like around 5% of the cases are false convictions. Nobody knows really. Just to clarify, I'm not saying all police and prosecutors lie, but there's enough examples of them getting caught lying that we can surmise that they're probably lying more often than they're actually getting caught, which is, which is a worrisome. Yeah, yeah. All right. And, you know, like, yeah, you know, one of the other injustices is they don't do anything to them. Like, you know, they, they don't get punished in the way that you would get punished. Like if you sent somebody to prison for 20 years falsely, you'd be in serious trouble. But, you know, if somebody does it as like using the powers of their office while working for the government, then, you know, the most that they'll get is they'll get fired from their job and you know, barred from working in that profession right maybe and that's that's a long shot even there in the particularly egregious case right in the, right in the in the most unlucky case right all right well let's shift to the current book knowledge reality and value what's your elevator pitch for this book well it's an introduction to philosophy and um you know i'm smart and uh, i'm a clear writer and so you'll probably and very humble and and, you know, there's not too much nonsense because I'm not very confused. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a better writer than most professors. So it won't put you to sleep as fast as most um, philosophy books. And I'll just say, you know, that's easy to say, but I've read, you know, a fair number of books in various fields. And he really is, he really is a good writer in philosophy. It really is accessible to everyone um, who's willing to put in the effort. I mean, you know, probably not a 10-year-old, but anyone with a right, normal education is going to, and who's willing to put in the thought is going to find this book accessible, which is one thing I really appreciate about it. And I, and I appreciate it's organized and it's, yeah, I, there's some bits where I kind of raise my eyebrows. Like there's a bit on souls. I wasn't quite sure where you're going with that, but again, we're not going to even talk about that. So, but at least I understood kind of what your arguments were. Right. So it's not like it was, I was just totally lost or anything. That's right. You know, like when so I've been teaching philosophy for like 20 years, and usually when you look for readings for the students, um, it's hard to find something that's suitable. So to try to find something that that covers the issues that I want, but doesn't go into a lot of detail about things that are not relevant, right? And so like I would I would do these collections of articles, but like none of the articles is quite suitable, right? Because They'll be like spending a lot of time talking about like things that are in the literature that the students haven't read. Like they're not written for students, they're written for other academics and things like that. Um, and so, you know, finally I broke down and just wrote my own book. No, it's great. And another interesting detail about this is you published it on your own. You didn't go through an academic press. And one consequence of that is the paperback is, I don't know, like $14 and the Kindle is like $8. Whereas most other academic or some other academic books are like 50 i've seen yeah. I, i've seen an academic book i think it was 250 bucks for one book i'm like yeah. who's who's gonna read that yeah um, and so, we'll, so yeah of course what the publishers are thinking is the libraries will buy it and nobody else will buy it and the libraries have enough money to pay 200 dollars or whatever um most textbooks are also you know pretty expensive so like I would see $40 to 
right? There was one, I saw one philosophy, just introduction to philosophy book that was like $140. And uh, what they're thinking is, well, that's 10 times more than mine. And what they're thinking is, yeah, the professor will just assign this and he won't worry about the price because he doesn't have to pay for it because he gets a free copy from the publisher. And then the students will just have to buy it, right? Well, at so, least this is enriching the philosophy professors who write the books, right? That's right, right? Like, yeah, with uh, with a traditional publisher, you know, you get um, somewhere around like 5% of the net, which is, you know, probably around 2% of the cover price, right? So like, you know, you, you get a percentage of the price that the publisher charges the bookstore which is a lot less than the price the bookstore charges to the customer. Okay, so it's probably something like 2%. So, um, you know, so I could cut the price by um, like fivefold and make more money per unit, right? Well, I hope that it's kind of an experiment in that sense. So, but I hope it's really yeah. successful because I would like more people to do that. Now, with the caveat, right? The writer has to be able to self-edit really well. And a lot of people just can't do that or they're not good at it or they don't spend the effort to do it. So you're maybe one of the yeah. small percentage of professional writers who can actually be dil diligent and uh, enough yeah. to self-edit. So there is that caveat, yeah. but, but it works yeah. in this case. So I hope that it's- Oddly enough, I have learned how to use a word processor. You'd be surprised by how many academics have not learned the functions of this program, word, like, they don't know how to use the headings or whatever. <laughs> like, uh, I think I have a colleague who doesn't know where the tab key is and he just presses space five times. <laughs> anyway, also, you know, I designed the cover myself. So, you know, most people probably wouldn't design one that looks good. Well, the photograph turned out really nicely. So yeah, it looks, it looks nice. You know, yeah, it's right. better cover than, it's a better cover, frankly, than most academic books, their covers. So. Yeah. Well, most of them are terrible. So <laughs> that's, not, that's a pretty good picture too. And this is Iskra in, uh, in Tampa Bay. If I can, if I can show it without it disappearing. Uh, <laughs> Mine is yeah. more reliable. Oops. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's nice. So, but just to clarify your, the other seven books are through academic publishers. And I think the new one, the justice one is out through Palgrave again, as are some of yeah. your other books. Yeah. Right. Which is, they do a good job too. And they're not, I, I can't remember. The price isn't horrible on the Justice book. I thought it was like 40 bucks or something. Under 40, yeah. So that's pretty That's pretty reasonable. I'm trying to get them to price it at 35. Well, it's the kind of book that I hopefully will be read far beyond ac uh, philosophy circles. I mean, there's a huge group of people who are interested in criminal justice reform. So hopefully, yeah. you know, it'll have a wider audience. Yeah. So, so distinguish philosophy from natural science. I thought that was a nice discussion in your book. Yeah, and you know, so like as I say in the beginning, um, the way that people learn most um, concepts or terms isn't from somebody like verbally describing what it means, it's from seeing examples of it. And so like to find out what philosophy is, the best thing to do is to see examples of philosophy, right? Um, but you know, I do say some general things about how it's different from science or religion. So um, I give the example of the ship of Theseus, where, you know, like, Theseus had this ship and he was like replacing individual parts of the ship. And so after a period of about 10 years, he's replaced every part of the ship, but all at different times, right? Not all at once. 
And so then you have a philosophical question, was it the same ship at the end that, that he had at the beginning? And you notice how this is different from a scientific question. So like there's no scientific investigation that is going to answer this question. There's no experiment to do on the ship, right? There's no careful measurements or whatever with scientific instruments or anything that will tell you it was the same ship. And so I like that example partly because it illustrates how, you know, how philosophical questions differ from other kinds of questions. Right? Um, yeah, it does, so. It does have some relevance because I think our, most of our body, body cells re replace every like decade or something. That's right, yeah. I think, um, so what I heard was that individual atoms get replaced, you know, within a period of seven years, um, about all of your atoms are replaced. I don't know if that's accurate. That's just what I read in a book somewhere, so. Hmm. Okay, but you know, but I'm sure they do get replaced at some rate. So, right, you're 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 not made of the same material you were made of when you were born. So there's a question about why it's still you. Right? And yeah, and again, like there's no there's no scientific experiment to do on that. Um, but it's not just like making up um, random opinions, right? It's not just like I say whatever I want or it's the way that I feel about it, right? There are logical arguments that you could construct on this question. So, like in the case of the ship, there's an argument that it has to be the same ship because um, if you take a single part out, that doesn't make a different ship, right? So, you know, the ship, the original ship is identical to the ship after you replace one part, i.e., you know, it still has the same ship. And then, by the same token, after you replace the second part, that's the same ship as the one after you replace the first. Okay, and so then you just go all the way down to the end, and by transitivity of identity, the first one has to be identical to the last one. Uh, but there's a seemingly compelling argument that it's not the same ship, which is it has zero overlap. I have no, no parts in common. Uh, you could even imagine that somebody collects all of the old pieces of wood that were thrown out of the ship and like puts them in, into a ship in the same configuration as the original one, right? And then I mean, there's a case to be made that that is closer to the original, right? And so like the one with the new wood can't be the original because there's something else that's a better better candidate for being the original ship. Right. Incidentally, uh, I just read this really peculiar book called Permutation City. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's basically about how people make copies of themselves on various computers. And so there could be like several copies of you running around in different sorts of quote realities. So. Um, anyway, there are people who are interested I mean, in this sort of thing. Yeah, you know, like I think this is sort of like um, touching on the discussion in the later chapter in the metaphysics part about personal identity. But so I think there cannot be two of you. And, you know, the reason for that is just the meaning of identity. So like by definition, only one thing is ever identical to you or anything, right? Identity is a relation that a thing bears to itself and to nothing else. So by definition, there can only be one thing that's identical to something. Um, so, and that bears on like, you know, what do you think makes something you, right? If your theory about what counts as you enables there to be two of you, then the theory is wrong. Right? So well, like if the theory is it's you as long as it has your memories and your personality traits or whatever, oh, that has to be wrong because there could be two things that have those traits. Well, in this book, this guy makes a copy of himself and his copy immediately, they like immediately have a huge conflict 
So it's very obvious to them that they're not, they're certainly not the same person. Right? Yeah. They, have, they have this huge conflict. Um, that so, is, you know, plausible for many people that that would happen. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, it's some strange plot plot twists there, but. I want to move into chapter three, which is called Critical Thinking Part One, Intellectual Virtue. What is rationality? Now, just some background here, right? I mean, we're in the era where Trump's minions tried to, well, they did assault the US Capitol just months ago based on these quite crazy conspiracy theories. And so we have, we have all this QAnon conspiracism coming up. Then we have all this talk about alternative facts, fake news. So this is one of the reasons this general era that we live in is one reason why I wanted to focus on these early parts about rationality and epistemology. So yeah. we'll start with the general question. What is <clears throat> rationality? Well, uh, I mean, so there's different senses of rationality. There's, you know, instrumental rationality and epistemic rationality. Instrumental rationality is basically doing the stuff that, um, um, satisfies your goals based upon the information that you have. But, you know, we're interested in epistemic rationality, which is basically forming beliefs um, correctly. <laughs> that is, forming beliefs that are supported by the evidence that you have and, you know, not contradicting yourself and not committing fallacies and things like that. In what sense is rational thinking relative to an observer? Well, um, I mean, it's, what is rational to believe varies from one person to another, right? So like, um, okay, you're in Westminster and I'm in Denver. And so it could be raining in Westminster. And so it could be rational for you to believe that it's raining because like you can see it. And it might not be rational for me to believe that because I can't see it, right? Okay. Uh, if you tell me that it is, then it could be rational for me to believe it, but that depends upon whether I trust you and so on. And you, know, you don't have to worry about whether you can trust yourself. Right. So like there's a variation in what's rational for different people to believe. Um, yeah. There, and, you know, there's some question about whether there could be variation, even if you have the same evidence. Um, and that's sort of like um, that's sort of a, you know, difficult philosophical question. Right. Say because you've been exposed to a different set of arguments or you've trained yourself better to think about things carefully or you're that, well, that kind right. of thing. I mean, what I meant. So I didn't discuss this in the book because it's sort of more complicated, but what Bayesians say is uh, you have your prior probabilities and then you have some evidence and you conditionalize on the evidence. So you start from the prior probabilities and then you adjust in the light of the evidence, but um, different people could start with different prior probabilities, right? And the prior probability is set by what? Um, there's no general agreement on that, but I would say just basically how plausible things seem to you at first glance. But none of this indicates that people can just make things up willy nilly or, and it doesn't indicate that, I mean, it's all, it remains the case that there's a huge body of facts, which are widely in, or even almost universally accessible. I mean, a newborn okay. won't know a whole lot of facts that an adult will know, but every adult in the world is going to know a huge an enormous body of facts that overlaps with every other person or like, you know, almost every other person. No, that's right. So like, if we're thinking about the conspiracy theories, like I think the conspiracists have enough information to reject the conspiracy theories. Like, I don't think it's just that, oh, they haven't been exposed to the evidence or whatever. I think it's sort of like they want to believe it or something like this. Um, 
And I think it's kind of easy for people to confuse um, to confuse liking a theory with the theory seeming true, right? So like you hear these conspiracy theories, I can't imagine that they seem plausible to anyone, but um, I can see how people could be emotionally attracted, right? So like my favorite example was when I heard a story that um, President Obama was um, making slave labor camps for children on Mars, right? It was like sending the kids to Mars. I didn't hear this. Slave labor camps. <laughs> and so like when you hear that, it's just like on the face of it, that is such a paradigm and example of a ridiculous, you know, insane schizophrenic level idea. Um, but you can also see how somebody would be attracted to that. <laughs> wow, how amazing. And Obama is so bad, <laughs> you know. Blue team boo. Yeah, I I don't have much patience with that kind of thing, but a lot of people believe a lot of crazy things. So obviously it's resonating with people on some emotional level. Yeah. In what sense is it nonsensical to ask whether a person should be rational? Oh, well, basically I think um, talk about what you should do is kind of talk about what's rational to do and vice versa. Right. So like what it means that it's rational to do X is, uh, yep, that's the thing you have the most reason to do, right? But, you know, what you, like, should you do the thing you have most reason to do? Like, what, what the hell does that mean? Um, if somebody asks why you should do the thing that's rational, what they're doing is they're asking for a reason to do that which they, by stipulation, have most reason to do. So, like, what am I supposed to say? Like, you already said that that's the thing you have most reason to do. Why are you asking for reasons for it? Yeah, I buy that. At like, I same... think a lot of people are just kind of confused about what rational means, right? Like, they don't, they just don't know what it means. And like, you know, they've just seen some things that other people have called rational. And so, like, if somebody else calls something rational, you can ask, why should I do that? It's like, you don't, if you don't know why, right? But, um, you know, if you understand what it actually means, you know, you realize you can only disagree about whether it's really rational or not. You can't really disagree about whether you should do it after you grant that it's rational. Nevertheless, pursuing truth generally is good for us. So why is that? Yeah, um, I mean, the main reason is most of the time in order to achieve your goals, you have to have correct beliefs about how the world works and things like that. Uh, and beliefs about... Um, Beliefs interact with other beliefs in lots of complicated and unpredictable ways. So if you have erroneous beliefs, you can't really predict in advance all of the other things that that might screw up. So like if you have a mistaken belief and you actually believe it, then you will naturally start making inferences from it. And so that can just like spread error throughout the rest of your belief system. And it's so complicated and like there's so many different beliefs. And also there's so many different um, future circumstances that you can't anticipate that you really don't know how it's going to screw up your future behavior and you know prevent you from getting whatever it is that you're trying to get. So like that's the main reason. So this kind of bleeds over into this issue of W.K. Clifford and his idea that it is morally virtuous to be rational and unvirtuous to be irrational. And I thought that was really helpful. I actually looked up his essay and read it after I read, note, read about it in your book. So explain what he's getting at and uh, tell us what you yeah, think about yeah. that. 
Yeah, that's a good article. So there's an article by W.K. Clifford, which I guess is called The Ethics of Belief or something, which is frequently reprinted in anthologies for um, philosophy students. Um, and basically, he says that it's morally wrong to hold beliefs on insufficient evidence. Right. So I uh, like the, the part about it being not merely irrational, but morally wrong. That's the, that's the main, you know, controversial point. Uh, and why is that? And so, he, like, he gives this example of um, there's a ship owner who, you know, he's supposed to examine the ship to make sure it's seaworthy. And he just sort of like deceives himself into thinking that the ship is fine because he doesn't want to spend money like checking it out thoroughly. So he tricks himself into believing that. And then, and you got to assume that he actually believes it. He's not just lying, but he's deceived himself into believing it because he didn't do the investigation that you need to do to, to form that belief. And then, you know, he rents out the boat to somebody else. And if the ship sinks in the middle of the ocean in the storm or whatever, because it hadn't been properly, um, hadn't been properly examined, then it's going to be the fault of the owner. So he is going to be morally blameworthy. But what he did was perfectly okay if his belief was correct. So the only thing that could be wrong was forming that belief, right? Like once you have that belief, then renting out the ship is fine. So what went wrong? And what went wrong had to be that he formed the belief. So it has to be that it was morally wrong to form that belief, right? And then you think, okay, but you know, that's only one case. Like there are lots of cases where um, you have a false belief and everything goes fine, right? <laughs> or you have an unjustified belief and everything goes fine. But uh, the other part of the argument is, um, you know, your moral blameworthiness shouldn't depend upon pure luck. So, like, if the if the ship owner did the same thing and then there was no storm and everything went fine and the boat got to its destination, um, you're supposed to think, well, he just got lucky. So he can't. He's not less morally blameworthy merely because he got lucky. So it's morally wrong even in the case where things go fine. The next thing is to say, every time you form an unjustified belief, there's a risk that there's going to be some harm that results from it. And so it's always morally wrong. What is an objective fact? Uh, basically a fact that does not depend on the attitudes of observers, um, you know, towards the thing that the fact is about, right? So like, um, you know, this, uh, I have this table that's rectangular, that's an objective fact, meaning um, it doesn't depend upon, you know, how people feel about it or what they think about it or whatever. If I close my eyes, it's still rectangular. If I don't like rectangles, it's still rectangular, whatever. This is in contrast to, there are some things that plausibly are subjective. So if a joke is funny, plausibly, that depends upon um, other people's reaction to the joke in a way that the shape of the table doesn't depend on our reaction. So you tell a joke and suppose that um, normal people in hearing that joke just do not feel amused. Plausibly, that means it was not a funny joke. So the funniness of the joke is subjective. So how is objectivity a virtue? Um, and then on the flip side, what is a bias and why is it a vice to succumb to bias? Oh yeah, I should say like there's two senses of objective, right? There's a sense that I just described, not being dependent on observers. Um, 
which applies to facts or propositions. Um, and then there's a sense in which objectivity is a character trait. And it's something like resisting bias, right? Like forming beliefs in a fair way without being too biased. Um, and then, okay, I just forgot what you asked about that. Just what now? Sorry, what, what was your question about this? Just uh, how is it a virtue and why is, why is falling into vice, why, why is falling into bias a vice? That was it. Yeah, um, basically because it's irrational, right? The vice because it's irrational, because it causes you to form beliefs that are not justified. And I mean, I talk about this partly because um, I just think there's so much lack of objectivity. Right, like there's different different vices that you could have, but it happens to be incredibly common for people to have kind of emotional biases. Uh, also, like common for people to be dogmatic, um, which is to say, um, their beliefs are extremely um, resistant to change. Now, you could imagine people who would have opposite vices. Like you could imagine somebody who's too generous to the opposite side in political debates. <laughs> and you can imagine somebody who changes their beliefs too quickly, right? And they get a little bit of evidence and they completely abandon their beliefs. But, but it just happens that we don't see those people. Just like um, people systematically tend to be biased in a particular direction. So, and you know, the problem is, well, you just, you wind up with a lot of false beliefs because, right? Well, people, people seem to be a lot more biased than they think. I mean, it's the kind of thing where if you realize you were biased in a certain way, you could try to work harder against falling into that sort of bias. So there seems to be something inherently invisible about your own biases to a large degree. And that's what causes the problem. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, like part of what I want to do is, I don't know, in teaching philosophy, I guess, part of what I want to do is make people aware of their biases. And my theory is that when that happens, then they will do it less, right? They will have less bias if they become aware of it. And the way to do that is to talk about, well, the biases that people most commonly have. And then maybe when you're doing the thing, you will notice it, right? Yeah, so yeah like this is an example. Like um, most people, when they gather information about political issues, they only listen to people on their side, right? So like uh, if somebody is watching Fox News, that person is almost certainly a conservative or you know, someone on the right. And you know, if you're watching MSNBC, almost certainly you're on the left. But wait, why is that? Because like, if you're just trying to gather more information, shouldn't you listen to the people who will say something that you don't already know? And like, the people most likely to tell, to tell you things you don't already know are the people who have an, a different political perspective, right? So why, why do people mostly listen to the stuff that they've already heard from people who already agree with them? Oh, it looks like they're trying to strengthen their existing beliefs. They're not just trying to learn more, right? And I like pointing this out because like, you know, almost everyone can see the point there and almost everyone is doing the thing that I just described, right? Almost everyone does that. So then you can see, oh, am I, am I biased also? <laughs> am I just trying to strengthen my existing beliefs? So what is the difference between objectivity and neutrality? And a background point here, there's been some huge debates within the field of journalism over whether journalists should be objective or neutral or whether they should give both sides equal play. And what, uh, these are interesting discussions in some sense, but to my mind, they're 
almost always extremely confused about some of these core concepts. So I thought maybe you could shed some light on this. Yeah, in the book, I promise to be objective, but not neutral. And what I mean by that is, so I have a view and I'm upfront about it. So like, I'm gonna tell you, this is what I think is the right view. And then I give arguments for it. Uh, does that mean that I'm non-objective? No, like, so I'm not biased. I, or at least I'm not more biased than most people from ever. Um, um, yeah, how could you be objective and partisan at the same time? Well, you know, objective sort of means um, as a character trait, like you're treating the different sides fairly. So like when I, when I discuss an issue, I present the different, the main alternative views. I don't only present one view. And when I present the alternative views, like I give a fair representation. Like I say the main reasons why somebody would hold that view. And I do my best to describe those reasons in something like the way the proponents of the view would describe them. So I don't try to skew it. Like I don't, you know, cherry pick the evidence or only pick the stupidest arguments they have, right? I don't like omit some important arguments that they have just to try to skew the, the reader's assessment or whatever, right? So I think I'm presenting these views objectively in that sense, right? Like I really, I presented as best I could the reasons why you would think that view. Um, but then that's compatible with also saying, and here's why I think that that view is wrong. Right. If one person says that there are Jewish space lasers and another person says there aren't Jewish space lasers, <laughs> then, yeah. uh, you know, you don't have to be neutral between which of those is the better. Okay. I should say, yeah, I mean, the, the views that I'm, the views that you need to spend time on are the ones that are reasonable alternatives. I should say that, right? So like, okay. you know, on the free will issue, I mean, I guess there's smart people, smart, um, generally reasonable people who think you don't have free will. So I have to discuss that view. And then, you know, people think that you do have free will and then people who think that free will and determinism are compatible and whatever. But I don't have to discuss the Jewish space laser theory. And like, no, nobody has to because it's like not on its face reasonable, right? Yeah, unless there's like some major news story that involves it, right? Like a conspiracy theorist committed a major crime. Then I guess you have to discuss what happened, but you don't have to have a debate about whether there were the space lasers. Okay, but it, so I was just kind of joking, but even, in, yeah. even among serious views, you can be, you can objectively evaluate a view about free will that you disagree with and then say, I disagree with it for these reasons but you're still being objective in your treatment of the, of the position. That's right, yeah. I mean, this is a thing that many people have trouble with. And also I think many people don't anticipate that somebody could be doing this. Like, you know, so many people will assume um, if you believe view X, then you're going to argue like a lawyer and you're only going to give the evidence for X and not acknowledge the evidence against it or something like that. And you should not do that. You should give, give the evidence on both sides um, but it's compatible with acknowledging the evidence on both sides that you think the evidence overall weighs in favor of this right, rather than that. That's totally compatible. You don't have to be dishonest in order to come to a conclusion. So you urge people to be cooperative and charitable philosophical discussants. Now, it's, it's even harder to find those traits in other outside of academic philosophy. <laughs> Um, maybe even out, maybe even in other areas of academia, but certainly in the realms of politics and culture. So yeah. what can we do to promote those sorts of character traits? Well, I mean, I guess one thing is just, um, 
just describing it, describing what it is, and like, and then people will see that it's good. And the other, the other way of promoting it is by um, modeling it, right? But I, I mean, I think that um, frequently when people are having a philosophical discussion or political or religious or whatever, um, a discussion about something that's controversial, they think of it as a contest. They think they're in a contest with the other person. And if you're thinking about it that way, then it's like every time they say something, you try to prevent them from making their point. Okay, now I want to say, I want to encourage people to not think of it that way because that is a waste of time. Like you don't need to have verbal contests with people. That doesn't accomplish anything. You know, like, okay, say that you succeeded in stopping the other person from making their point by like throwing in roadblocks in the conversation and changing the subject every time they were about to make their main argument and stuff like that, which is a thing that people do. I think they don't exactly, people don't entirely realize that they're doing this, okay? But they're just sort of like intuitively, instinctively saying whatever derails the other person's argument. <laughs> so anyway, and at the end of that conversation, you've accomplished what? Nothing. So I would like to suggest that we instead view conversations, including with people we disagree with, as an opportunity to learn or increase our understanding, right? Like maybe you and the other person can just try to understand each other's positions better. And usually that's the best thing that you could hope to come out of the conversation. Usually you can't hope for the other person to just shift their view to the other side, but you could hope to have them better understand where you're coming from and maybe you could better understand where they're coming from, right? So if you think of that as your goal, then I think the conversation goes better. And, you know, like when they're giving some examples, you don't try to change the example. Just like accept it the way that they intended it. And don't like, um, don't ask questions that like the answer to is obvious. <laughs> so like, you know, don't ask where, you know, there's an example where there's a trolley that's headed towards um, five people who are on the track, right? And like you can switch it to another track where it will only hit one person, right? What should you do? Okay, don't ask if the five people on the track are, you know, Adolf Hitler and, you know, Pol Pot and Joseph Stalin, whatever, because obviously they're not, because that would defeat the point of the example. So just like accept the example the way it's obviously intended. <laughs> this is part of what I mean by being cooperative, right? Don't waste time like suggesting modifications that are obviously distracting from the person's point. So I guess I would say, first of all, we should try to hold up the mirror to ourselves more and try to be more critically self-reflective in how we're going about having discussions. So that would help. And uh, maybe everybody buy a copy of Mike's book for your uh, friends and family for Christmas <laughs> and try to spread these ideas. Honestly, for the that's one that's one thing that I hope that the low price does is it simply lets people easily buy copies um, yeah. for themselves and others. So, that's right. all right. Yeah. So that takes hope as well. What's that? That was my hope as well. <laughs> right. So that took us through chapter three. I want to move into chapter four, which is critical thinking part two: fallacies. Yeah. And most of this is straightforward, and a lot of this I'm not going to cover. But there's a few things that you just have a little bit of a surprising twist. So I want to talk about some of these things. Yeah. How should we account for the messenger when evaluating the message? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're bringing this up because there's traditionally there's a couple of fallacies called the appeal to authority and the argument ad hominem. And, you know, in the appeal to authority, you believe something because of who said it or something like that. 
And um, in the argument ad hominem, you reject something because of who said it and because there are bad characteristics of that. And I want to say, like, so obviously sometimes those things are mistakes, but also sometimes those are totally rational. So, like, um, you know, the fact that somebody is generally dishonest is a reason for, like, discounting what they say, right? It's, and, you know, like, you might think, oh, this is the argument ad hominem fallacy. I'm saying that this guy lied in the past, right? Okay, you might think, okay, yeah, sure, that, you know, it applies if they lied and you think that they're lying now. But, you know, what about, like, other, other negative characteristics of that? No, well, like people who, you know, if the person you're talking to turns out to be like an armed robber, I think that increases the chances that they're also a liar. <laughs> so, like, it's not, it's not completely a fallacy to look at the characteristics of somebody who's talking and use that to assess the credibility of what they say. Okay, now you might think, oh no, like most of the time, I don't know, like in philosophy, you don't have to assess people's credibility because you can just like evaluate their statement on its own on the merits. The thing is, like, um, in most discussions, the credibility of the other person is at least part of how you have to evaluate what they're saying. Um, most of the time, people are uh, making claims about stuff that they allegedly know. So you're having a political discussion. Um, it would be pretty rare that the person would not make any factual claims about anything that you don't have independent knowledge of. They're constantly doing that, right? They're, like, people are constantly telling you some story about something that happened or some statistic that they heard or something like that, that you don't have independent verification of. So you, you do have to like rely on the credibility of the other person. Right? Um, so yeah. Um, and you know, similarly on the other side, if somebody is an expert on something or even just is generally intelligent, then you should sort of increase the credibility of the thing that they're saying. Okay. Does the popularity of a belief make it more likely to be true? Yeah, obviously, yes. <laughs> like, you know, I think like there's a significant number of people who think the answer is no, and especially libertarians. And I think that's completely insane. <laughs> um, you know, like, what do you have to believe? What would have to be the case for that not to be the case, right? Um, so there's a, there's a theorem in probability theory known as the Condorcet jury theorem. And it has to do with if you have a number of people who are independently assessing some yes or no question and you know if the um if the reliability of the people is greater than 50 percent then the majority opinion is more likely to be true and the probability of the majority opinion being correct uh, increases dramatically with the number of people in the majority and it's just a simple matter of probability theory okay <laughs> and you know it just doesn't even have to be people like anything that is correlated with something else if you have you know, multiple different factors that are positively correlated with something. And, you know, the more of them point in a certain way, the more likely that that conclusion is to be correct. Okay. So you could avoid this only if you think that people are anti-reliable. Like the average person just systematically directs away from the truth. It's like they've got a mechanism in their head that detects the truth and then turns around and goes away from it, right? And if that was the case, then we would all be dead. Like our ancestors would not have survived if we were generally anti-reliable, right? But, but I want to emphasize here, this is not to say that it, I mean, it can still be the case that most people are wrong about some issue. So an yeah. obvious example, most people in many societies have thought that slavery is okay, wrong. 
Um, and it, I wanted to bring up yeah. this example from your previous book on political authority, where you go through this whole explanation where almost everyone believes that government has authority, proper authority over us in this certain way that you just, it's kind of technical. But then you have a theory as to why just about everybody is wrong and it has to do with a pervasive bias. So there yeah. can be things that sort of counter counteract what you previously said. Okay. But but it still is the case that like, you know, if everybody, if you ask a hundred people, do you see a tree in front of you? <laughs> right. Let's say you're blind, you're blindfolded and you ask a hundred people, is there a tree in front of you? Right. You could probably, it's probably going to be the case that most people get that right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, another thing, when you ask questions like, are, is the majority opinion usually correct? You know, another problem that happens is that people don't think of the typical example. They think of weird examples. Like if you interview people about their religion, unlike that's very commonly wrong. Okay, but your religion is not a typical belief. A typical belief is like, oh, there's a table in front of me now. And, I, and you could just like list thousands of things that people believe. Like, oh, and then there's a book there and the cover is orange, whatever. So like, yeah, the overwhelming majority of things that most people believe are true. The world has existed for at least five minutes. Another thing that I believe, right? Seven is more than two. Um, there are more than four people in the world. <laughs> and you could just go down this list of things that almost everyone believes, right? And almost all of them are true. You only get the weird, you know, you only get like the large scale errors when you get to sort of like abstract things that are not observable, right? And are like kind of very theoretical and also things that people have particular biases about. So uh, when people get emotional about the question, like, you know, especially there's some abstract theoretical thing that, pe that people are emotionally attached to, then it's more likely that you get widespread errors. Okay. So you're pretty pessimistic about learning the truth from popular media. Now, I'm more optimistic than you seem to be. If the person is critically engaged, reading different sources, trying to anticipate the agenda of a reporter and some things like that. But what are the, what are the general problems you're seeing? Um, and I guess maybe I should add, how do people compensate or correct for that? Yeah, I mean, so um, I don't think that I cover this in the book, but... Um, or maybe I mentioned this in passing. The thing about the media is, um, it's like you think that their job is to inform the public, right? Maybe like maybe people have this idealistic view that they're preserving democracy by informing the public about what they need to know and keeping watch on the government and things like that. But um, you know, in a in a sense, that's their job. In a sense, that's not their job, right? If you think their job is that which they get paid for, then that's not their job. Their job is to entertain or even, even more specifically, like their job is to sell advertising space. That's the business model, okay? The way that this business works is they sell attention to advertisers. So their incentive is to put out whatever story will capture people's attention. And that's not the same as the story that's accurate and informative and relevant, right? And so like, here's a thing that would be um, useful if, you know, if you're just trying to inform the public, um, we would like, uh, we would see news reports giving the statistics on homicide in the country over the last year. You know, when the statistics come out from the FBI crime reports, they would have a story about that. Like, 
okay, and here's the different kinds of homicides. You're like, these were gang violence, and these were drug-related, whatever, and they would go down that and describe that. You never see that because that is not entertaining. And the thing that is, um, the thing that is going to capture attention is things that uh, provoke emotions, provoke strong emotions, and then that will get people to share the story. And so it happens that it's easiest to provoke fear, anger, and hate. <laughs> okay, so that's what they do. So they're trying to sow division in the country because that gets people excited and gets them to share. And they're trying to like provoke outrage and things like that. They probably wouldn't say that that's what they're doing, but it's just that, you know, those are the kinds of, they're trying to print stories that people are gonna click on. Those are the kinds of stories that people will click on. Um, so, like, a good example is um, they're reporting on police violence, okay. Um, so that should be reported, right? So there's something like 1,100 police shootings per year, fatal police shootings, um, homicides. Uh, okay, and um, most of those, the victim is a white person. What percentage of, um, what percentage of the shootings that are reported on the news are white? Um, close to zero. Right? Uh, they're like almost all the stories I hear are black guys getting shot by white cops. Why is that? Well, because that's going to provoke outrage. Because if you, if you sell the story that, you know, cops are murdering black people just for the hell of it because they're racist assholes, they're just murdering people because of the color of their skin, that provokes outrage. It sows division in the country but they don't care about that. They just care that people are clicking and sharing the story, right? So, and if you, if you say, well, actually, you know, they're killing people of all different races. So that is also outrageous, but it's not as outrageous. And you want to maximize outrage. You have to throw, it's not enough that they're just killing people. If you go in also racism, then you get more outrage. And so that's what you do, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's some, it's interesting, there are some new media models that are more subscription-based and not as advertising-based. Of course, that's just because newspapers lost a lot of their advertising to Facebook. So they've kind of had to come up with some alternatives. Um, but you, you get a similar sort of dynamic in that you're sort of, you're, you're playing to, you're, it's still a matter of playing to a particular crowd in a certain way that can be very destructive. But yeah, I agree with that, which is why I'm, I'm really happy that there are things out there like, uh, our world and data and they're and they you know they're trying to add context on a lot of these stories they're, they're worried more about global poverty they've done a lot of good work on the covid stats so so there are some efforts to sort of try to give people more of the context which i appreciate so yeah. hopefully we'll hopefully we'll see more of that right i mean you know the problem is sort of problem is also in the audience right like the way i was describing it, it sounded like i was really really hard on the news media. But the thing is, like, well, there are some people who are providing useful, informative things, you know, informative, relevant data. But uh, if the audience doesn't want to read it, then, you know, it just doesn't work. And so, you know, like, right, like, as, as you have just mentioned, right, there is stuff out there that is more useful and informative and relevant, but most people are not going to go read it. Well, just on a personal note, you know, I write a political column, I guess you know that. And it's, it's often frustrating to me, what I think is important gets no attention. And the stuff that I just kind of throw out there as 
you know, a less serious topic will just kind of sometimes blow up. And I'm like, people pay attention to what matters here and not just what seems exciting at the moment. And it's in any way. So I'm, you know, I'm sure I have my own flaws and problems, but at least I, I try to make some effort to think about these things and I'll, I'll try to redouble my efforts there. Yeah, no, you have no flaws, Ari. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, it is hard though. It's hard to hold the mirror up to yourself, especially when your financial well-being depends on going about things in a certain way, which is the case with a lot of people in in media. I mean, I don't think Tucker Carlson is uh, struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's uh, very entertaining, right? That's a good example. <laughs> so yeah, so even when even when money isn't on the line, it's really hard to evaluate our own biases see what our our problem our intellectual problems and shortcomings are but then you add you know this is your living wow it can become really difficult to really be self-critical in the ways that people probably need to be yeah that's right yeah you you know there's quotation from upton sinclair it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So I want to shift into the next chapter, Absolute Truth. Now, just to clarify here, right, I'm only hitting certain highlights, even of the chapters that I'm going through, because there's a lot in there that just, I, I don't, it just doesn't seem controversial, or there's no reason for me to ask you about it. it. There's reason for people to read about it, but, you know, I just want listeners to realize I'm hitting highlights. I'm certain, by no means giving you a full sense of even what's in these chapters. Um, so, but but at any rate, chapter five is about Absolute Truth. And there are some important things I want to hit in here. Is So a lot of people say truth is relative or things of that nature. What's wrong with that? Um, I don't know. It's incoherent and meaningless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but um, the discussion in the chapter is more subtle than that. So I try to figure out what that means, right? Okay, what does it mean that truth is relative? So um, it varies from one person to another. So a statement could be true for one person and not true for another. Okay, go. What does that mean? What does it mean that a statement is true for a person? And I actually have had a hard time figuring out what that is supposed to mean. Um, okay, so like here's an interpretation. It means believed by the person. Like, X is true for me means I believe X. And like that's the only coherent interpretation I've thought of. But if that's what it means, then it's just like an abusive language, right? So like me believing something is one thing and it being true is another thing. And like this expression true for you is just confusing those two with each other. And that's like a huge conceptual confusion. That's just going to like destroy your mind if you can't distinguish belief from truth, right? Okay, anyway. So, but that, that presume, like a smart relativist doesn't want to say that that's it, right? And then like it turns out that the thesis of relativism is people can believe different things. Okay, <laughs> like, and if you believe different things, then the thing that you believe is believed by you. Like, right? like the thing that you believe is true for you. If that, if that just means it's believed by you, that's trivial, right? And trivial is like, you know, philosopher's terminology for this thing is so obvious, there's no point in saying that, right? And by the way, philosophers generally try to avoid being trivial, right? So, okay, so they want to say that in some sense they're using the normal concept truth. They're not just changing the meaning of true to be believed. Um, okay, but then I can't figure out like on what interpretation truth could be relative, right? So here's the thing. Um, 
this is a this is what I say about truth in the chapter, right? Um, so here are two things that I know about truth. This isn't exactly a definition of it, but these are like the two minimal things I know about how the word true works. If it's true that P, then P. Like if it's true that it's raining, then it's raining. Also, here's the second thing. If it's raining, then it's true that it's raining. <laughs> okay, so like that's, that's what I know about how the word true works. Okay, now if you say that truth is relative, so like a thing to be true for one person and not true for another, then that means that everything is relative. That means that it could be raining for me and not raining for another person. So rain is relative. I don't even know what this means. <laughs> but like, and by the way, I don't mean like raining in one place and not raining in another. So to clarify, right? Raining right here, right now. Right? If truth is relative, then it could be raining right here, right now for me, but not for you. <laughs> right? Or, you know, okay, um, the sun is hot, right? <laughs> Or, you know, you like, so to avoid confusion, just replace that with a statement of the exact temperature, right? And like, it could be that temperature for one person up or another. Like, I don't know what that means, but everything, like everything in the world is a relationship to a person. Like the sun is a relationship to me or whatever. Every fact about it is a relation to a person. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I totally buy this. And I hope that, I hope that lots of people read the book just to read those discussions. What is the difference between fact and opinion? Now, I want to give a little background here. Um, in a couple of years ago, the Colorado legislature ordered up a report about media literacy, about how we need to get all these kids to learn more about media literacy. And one aspect of this report is that kids need to be taught the difference between fact and opinion. But you yeah. have a couple of remarks about that. So well, I'll just ask yeah. you, what is the difference between fact and opinion? Yeah, what I'm really I mean, asking you is why is why is this more troublesome than people often acknowledge? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I'm not not really sure because like I've heard this distinction, but I can think of different things that it might mean. I'm not sure what it's supposed to mean. Um, and by the way, is the distinction between fact and opinion a fact or is it an opinion? Like, you know, that there is such a distinction and it is what they say. Um, I think it's an opinion, but I think it's taught as if it were a fact. Yeah. Well, I think one, well, here's the, here's one example I wanted to ask you. Yeah. And because I think that a, a lot of people use this to simply mean that there are no moral facts. There's not anything you can say that has any moral implication is automatically not a fact. So is this a fact or an opinion in your view? Slavery is wrong. That's a fact. Yeah. Okay. But I think, I think a lot of people are going to want to say, oh, that's, that's an opinion because that's making a, norm, a moral a normative claim. Yeah. So I think, I think that's one of the big problems. Yeah, no, I mean, um, like when, so students are taught this distinction in high school. And then like, if you come to a philosophy class, you have to be untaught it because, you know, your high school teachers confuse you, right? So anyway, so one of the things that you might be taught with this was, is basically you might be taught um, moral anti-realism, right? Like there are, there are no objective moral values and they wouldn't explicitly say that. They would just like presuppose that in the whole discussion. Um, and like that's a, well, that is a controversial philosophical assumption. I haven't proved that it's wrong, but like the majority, actually the majority of experts, if you want to say moral philosophers are experts, the majority of them are moral realists, which means they think that there are moral facts basically. 
So if you have a high school teacher who's presupposing that there aren't any, um, I don't know, like don't listen to the high school teacher. Okay, but anyway, like there are these different things that people might be thinking of. So one is um, whether, uh, one question is whether something could be objectively true or not. Uh, and then another question is whether the truth could be decisively verified or not. And like notice that those are different things. Um, so, yeah, what else? Um, but so, um, yeah, like, you know, some of these things like um, you have a philosophical position and um, it's true or it's not true. And it's like, it's not dependent on the observer, but also it might be that there's not a general agreement on it. But whether there's a general agreement on something is a separate matter from whether there's a fact. But like I take the fact to be the thing in reality. Like there's a state of affairs existing in reality. I take that to be the fact. That's separate from the question of whether we can verify it, which itself is separate from whether everyone agrees on it. Because there could be something that's been verified, but that people still don't agree on. It's like, well, what if somebody's irrational and they refuse to agree with the thing that's been verified? People have the power to do that. <laughs> like, you know, we can't just like force everyone to agree with something. So like, no matter how well something has been verified, there are going to be some people who still refuse to accept it. So that's a, yeah. An so obvious example. There being an objective fact. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, an, an obvious example is, evolution, biological evolution. I think most Americans still reject wholly or largely the theory of evolution. And yet it's one of the most well-established scientific facts that there is. Yeah. So like, you know, that is a fact in the sense of that's the way the world is, if that's what we mean by fact. Um, like there's compelling evidence for it. It's not 100% probable, but then nothing about the external world is ever 100% probable, okay? But there's very powerful evidence for it, so it would be a fact in that sense. On the other hand, it's not universally agreed. So like if that, you know, then it's just an opinion if that's what the, if that's what the distinction is about, right? But so like, you know, I'm part of my problem is that I think the way the distinction is thought of, um, it's three different distinctions that are jumbled together. And if you jumble these things, these things together, then you're just making like a huge philosophical mistake. Like you're, you're thinking that if people don't agree with something that prevents it from existing in reality, that's the effect of confusing these different distinctions. So I wanted to go through a few examples from Pure, Pew Research Center, because this is one, one thing they wrote up on this topic is one of the things in this government report that the Colorado legislature now wants to implement for teachers to teach, uh, for, to teach students how to become more media savvy. So there's, there's a really obvious thing, right? So I think this is non-controversial. They say, President Barack Obama was born in the United States. I mean, some people still dispute that, but that's an obvious fact, right? So they're labeling that as a fact, so that's not a problem. Okay. Then they say, they don't do something as obvious as slavery is wrong, because I think that would be too, like, it's funny, people don't want to deal with those kind of obvious cases. So here's what they, they do, they use, Abortion should be legal in most cases. Now, highly controversial, I regard that as a fact, but I acknowledge that it's a difficult fact to establish. And I also acknowledge that many people think that it's not a fact and that the opposite is the fact. <laughs> um, so that's, that's just one, it's, yeah. it's confusing, but I think it's misleading to say that it's merely an opinion and not a fact. Yeah, um, by the way, like this is another thing that's confusing, right? The word opinion, what does that mean? 
I think it means a belief, right? It means something that you think is the case. And the word fact means something that is the case, right? So by separating like fact versus opinion, by drawing this dichotomy, you're basically saying that if you believe something to be the case, then it cannot be the case. Like that, right? That's what it means to say that fact and opinion are two disjoint categories with no overlap, right? That's crazy. So here's the last one I want to get from Pew. They say, government is almost always wasteful and inefficient. Now, I think you can guess how they're going to categorize that. They're going to say that's an opinion. Yeah. But to me, that's like one of the most obvious and straightforward facts you could state about government, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is not to say that therefore government is bad, right? Oh, well, maybe we need government, even though it's usually wasteful and inefficient. Um, yeah. By the way, I'd say the same thing about any large corporation. Yeah. Any large group of people, wasteful and efficient. Yep. Um, yeah. So I don't know how you would categorize that, but it's like they, they seem to they seem to be saying that if you have any kind of political agenda, then it's therefore an opinion and it can't be a fact. So I don't know. Well, but yeah, but what about the Barack Obama statement? Like, you know, there's disagreement about that based on political ideology. So why doesn't that become an opinion? You know, the Trump supporters think that he was born in Kenya, so I don't know. Like, we don't have to defer to them, but we have to defer to the anti-abortion people. I'm not sure that I'm sure wrong. Well, and one thing I think that there's, I mean, I think that we've made clear already that this is a more complicated issue than a lot of people presume. And one thing that worries me is that if you're in a schoolroom setting, you're basically having the teacher or this article, whatever, dictating to students what they have to declare facts and opinions. And so it's not really like what they're actually thinking about these things and what they actually they're they're trying to guess what somebody else thinks is a fact or an opinion <laughs> to get the test right or whatever no, so it right. is a little bit like, worrisome to me in terms yeah, of like uh, yeah if you're clever you can give the categorizations that you know that that those that the teacher will accept right but then you know maybe that's not what we want um but you know this is bringing up this is sort of like pointing up why i said at the beginning um i'm not sure whether this distinction is itself a matter of fact or a matter of opinion right so like the, the way that the teacher will classify these things is the teacher's opinion. Um, like if we, you know, if you apply the, whatever, if you put my answers to this test question are correct as one of the test questions, um, you should categorize that as opinion, right? But the teacher is teaching it as if it were a fact. Well, this just occurred to me. I believe the Republicans were successful in putting into this bill that wants to implement this media literacy program in Colorado to let people suggest other sources. <laughs> so I'm totally gonna suggest your book for this program just because for one thing, it's actually would be helpful. For another thing, it'd be hilarious to do that. Yeah, um, I'd be good to undermine the rest of the teachings, right? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look, if they're gonna read this Pew thing about what an opinion versus a fact is, I think they ought to, yeah. you know, read some sections from your book to see what a philosopher actually thinks about these things. Not yeah. that that's not that you spend a lot of time focusing on that, but at least you touch on the, those sorts of issues. Yeah. All right. I have just one question about skepticism and the external world, not because it's not important, just because people who are really interested um, can go and read this book and then read your previous book on skepticism. And, uh, you know, there's a lot in there to think about, but I just, didn't really want to handle it, try to handle it in a podcast, at least this one. But I wanted to just establish this basic point. So skepticism, as people like Michael Shermer use the term, 
basically means something like science-minded. Um, but that's not what you have in mind here. So what is the sort of skepticism that you're interested in in this chapter? Yeah, yeah. Like skepticism in philosophy is a way more extreme view than skepticism in the sense of Skeptic Magazine and Michael Shermer and so on, right? Um, so skeptics basically think that um, there's some huge class of things that you would normally say you know that we don't really know, right? Okay, so for example, the most popular kind of skepticism talked about in philosophy is external world skepticism. This is the view that nobody can know any contingent fact about the external world. Okay, and, uh, or in other words, there's some fact about the external world and if it could be, if there's more than one way that it could be, then no one can ever know how it is. Like you can't know if there's a table in front of you. You know, I don't know if I have hands, which you know, in this case might, might wonder about. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, um, and then, you know, the, it goes up to global skepticism, which holds that nobody can know anything at all. And then there's a stronger version of this that nobody has any reason to believe anything at all, including this, right? <laughs> including skepticism itself. Right, so um, you know, very, very extreme and um, you might say intuitively crazy views. Okay. So again, it's super interesting. Um, but for now, for our purposes, I'm going to move on to um, a little different issue. Oh, so chapter six is science about the external world. Chapter seven, you call global skepticism versus foundationalism. So this is pretty interesting. Um, well, let me just give you some some background in terms of my experience. I hear a lot of Christians and other religious people say, well, at some point you have to accept something on faith. So you might as well accept what I accept on faith to get going. Yeah. And so I that's like my that's prelude. Whatever I want to believe. <laughs> that's my prelude to asking you about what is foundationalism? And I guess I'll add, how is foundational knowledge different from just having faith in something? Yeah, so foundationalists think um, two important things, that there are at least some beliefs that you could be justified in believing without having a reason for it, something like that, right? Or some things that you could know that don't have to be based on anything else that you know. There's like different, different formulations of it. And uh, the second thing they believe is that all the rest of your knowledge or all the rest of your justified beliefs are based upon those foundations. Right, so, okay, so what are the things that you could be justified in believing without having a reason? Uh, there's different accounts of this, but, you know, commonly people will say something like if you directly observe something. Like I observed the hand, I could directly know that it exists. Although if, you're, if we're careful, we should say what I directly know isn't that it's a hand, but I directly know that there's a thing with a certain color and shape. Okay. Um, or, uh, but not everyone accepts that. Some people say, no, 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 it's only that you're having an experience. Uh, of a thing with that color and shape. That's what you, that's what's foundational, right? There's a disagreement about that. Anyway, okay. So, and then the rest of your belief system has to be built on the foundation. Right? And then the other part of your question was, oh, so that's just faith, right? No, I don't think that's what faith means. <laughs> like, if I believe that there's a hand because I saw the hand, I don't think that's faith, right? Faith would be if I didn't see it and then I thought that, I thought that it was there anyway, right? Um, so like the, the difference is, um, well, I actually had an experience. I had an experience of the thing, and then I believed the content of the experience. 
you might say, well, why doesn't that count as having a reason for it? Well, basically because I, I take the word reason to refer to another belief. So the reason I think there's a hand is that I have a hand experience. The hand experience isn't a belief, it's experience. Right? And so that directly caused me to believe the thing that the experience is representing. Um, when you take something on faith, you didn't have an experience that represented it. You just decided to believe it anyway. Like that's why it counts as an article of faith. Okay, now maybe the religious people would deny that that's what faith means. So there's some people who say, no, I have religious experiences actually. So if you have an experience in which it, it feels to you like you're in contact with God, then in my view, that is a reason to believe in God or that is some justification. Um, that doesn't prove it, though. I like, you know, there could still be counter evidence and so on, right? But that is, you know, that gives you some justification for thinking it. And then you have to think, you know, is there, is there any reason that would go against that, right? Is that the best explanation of, of our experience and so on? Right. Like, <clears throat> there are certain substances people can take that can give them pretty interesting experiences along those lines. So that might, you know, play into how we evaluate some of these claims. I mean, things yeah, along I mean, those lines. Yeah, so, you know, like one of the things to take into account is what is the best, um, like what might have caused your experience. So if you took hallucinogenic drugs and then you have an experience, then your knowledge that you took the hallucinogen undermines the credibility of the experience. So like you get to assume that your experience, you get to assume that things are the way they seem, but unless you have some evidence that would indicate that your experience might be distorted. Okay. Like... <clears throat> Yeah, so there, you, there's difference between perceiving things yeah. in the world and hallucinating hallucinations that can seem very much like perceptions, but we recognize there's a difference between those things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in, you know, in reality, by the way, um, hallucinations do not normally look just like perceptions, but, um, but philosophers like to imagine the hallucination that's indistinguishable from normal perception. So um, if you have uh, if you had a hallucination that was just like a normal perception, and you had no reason to think that you would be hallucinating, then you're justified in believing the thing that you hallucinated to be the case. I.e., a rational person would think that that is what's actually happening. So, if for some bizarre reason this cup is actually a hallucination, and you know, and if it wasn't disappearing like that, um, then and but I had no like I had no idea that I ingested the hallucinogen accidentally, then. I should think there's a cup here. Like I'd be irrational if I didn't think that and so on, right? Okay. So I'm, I hesitate to ask this because it's a heavy one, but maybe you can give it a brief treatment. So you're big on what you call the principle of phenomenal conservatism, which must mean that you think certain Republicans are super awesome and phenomenal. But, uh, no. <laughs> um, but is there a way that you can briefly describe what you're getting at with this idea? Yeah, uh, the short statement is, you know, it's rational to assume that things are the way they seem, unless you have reason to think otherwise, right? So, and this applies to a lot of different things, like um, why, why does it make sense to, for me to believe right now that I have a hand? Well, it looks like there's a hand here, and I don't have any reason to doubt that. So that's why I think there's a hand there, <laughs> like, and that's the starting point. And, but not just that, like everything that you believe. That's the way that it goes. It's, that's the way that it starts, right? The way everybody's belief system about anything starts is something seems to them to be the case and they don't have reason for doubting it, so they believe that that's the case. Right? It also applies to philosophical beliefs. 
So if you um, like, if you're evaluating the thing that I just said, you're probably evaluating it based on how it seems to you. Like, did the thing I just said seem true to you? And if you rejected it, then you probably rejected it because it didn't seem true to you. So I guess the most easily accessible sort of thing are perceptions, what we see here, et cetera. Um, and generally it's, we assume that what we're perceiving is in some sense related to, way, to the way the world actually is. Um, so that's maybe the most relatable case to people. But then you also talk, I don't think you talk about memories in this book. I think you mentioned them. Um, so there's also, we rely on our memories at least in certain contexts. While we recognize, though, that this is interesting because we recognize that there can be certain ways in which our memories can become distorted. Yeah. But we're I'm remembering that I know that, right? So it's yeah. it gets it gets interesting when you start thinking through the implications of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. this applies, by the way, to ethics, which brings me to the idea of what is an intuition in your sense, in the sense you're using it. And explain the difference between an intuition and a feeling or an emotion, because almost all critiques I hear of intuitions in the philosophic sense comes down to, well, that's just going by your feelings, but that's not what you mean. So what do you mean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, referring to this phenomenal conservatism principle. Uh, so by the way, the reason it's called phenomenal conservatism is the Greek word for appearance is phenomena. So well, phenomenon. Okay, and so the idea is that we preserve the appearances. Uh, there are different species of appearances. That is, there are different kinds of things that seem to you to be the case. And um, so like there's the sensory appearances, like when there seems to be a hand here. And then there's the memory appearances, like I seem to remember that I had a piece of toast this morning or something, um, a seeming memory. And then um, there's some intellectual appearances where you just think about something intellectually and something seems right. Okay, so this happens in ethics as well as many other areas where you think about something intellectually and something seems right. Well, let's so, let's do some really simple things like three is greater than two. Yeah, yeah. I think about that. Think about three and think about two. Yeah, three seems to be bigger, <laughs> right? Meaning something like it's obvious when you think about it, right? You're going to have this experience that just seems right. Um, the shortest path between two points is a straight line. That seems right. Although, by the way, like um, to really have the experience, it's best to bring up something that the person hasn't thought about before. Because like, if I give these examples that you've heard many times before, you might not be having the experience now, you might just remember that that's what you believe. So. Okay, so um, um, if it's not the case that A and B, then either it's not the case that A or it's not the case that B. All right, so when you think about that, you all have an experience that it seems right, I hope. All right, so then that is an intuition. So an intuition is this experience where something seems correct um, as a result of thinking about it intellectually and not as a result of going through an argument. This could happen in ethics, for example. Um, I think about whether you should inflict pain on others for no reason, right? <laughs> or just, just for the heck of it. And it seems like you shouldn't do that. Seems bad, seems wrong to cause bad stuff without good reason. Okay, so, um, oh, um, and yeah, and the, the way that people are talking about intuition, like the people who are criticizing intuition, I think that they don't understand what they're saying, right? 
I think that they're just confused. So I'm not sure what they think intuition is, and I'm not sure what they think they're doing. Because the people who think that they're criticizing ethical intuitions are typically not nihilists. Like they're typically not people who just want to reject all ethics. Rather, they have some other ethics, like you know, Joshua Green is a utilitarian. So I have no idea what they think, where they think their ethics comes from. You know, like do they think that they believe their ethical beliefs don't seem true to them? Like they believe they started their ethical system with some stuff that didn't seem true or it seemed false or something like that. Like I just don't even, I have no idea what they think about their own belief system. Okay, but anyway, um, and then sometimes you hear about studies of intuition, like psychology studies that are supposed to show that people's intuitions are unreliable. Um, but um, like I'm not even sure that they're about intuitions. So I think that like what happens in the psychology study is they give you some story and then they ask you, is this right or wrong, right? Okay, but I think that it might be that the subjects of the experiment um, don't really care. Actually, this is pretty widespread, pretty widespread problem about psychology experiments. The subject of the experiment doesn't care about whether they're giving the right answer or not. They just like, they want to, they're just going to go through the experiment. So they're not going to exert any effort and they're not like reflecting. They're not thinking hard before they answer. They're just going to say the first thing that comes into their mind. So like, I'm not sure that that's a good test, right? Um, if we wanted to test intuitions, we would want, um, we would want to test them after like somebody was carefully reflecting, right? And we would want to like, we probably want to ask, um, you know, smart people who had reflected a lot. If, if we wanted to see whether intuitions could be a source of ethical knowledge, which they're, they're not going to do. Well, I mean, I can see, I sympathize with the concerns because it almost seems like it is or is akin to something like a mystical revelation. And I think that really worries a lot of people. And it really worries me. I think that I understand. I think I understand more where, what you're actually saying now. <laughs> so yeah. I can distinguish what like a mystical insight from what you're talking about. But I yeah. think that's sort of the motivation for being really skeptical of intuitions. But what's really, so what me, what to me is powerful is like going through what is the roots of this skepticism and why do you, you know, why, why are you thinking certain ways? And if you get, if you keep digging down, I mean, ultimately you're, you're relying on some things, which you would call intuitions at a certain point, like what seems reasonable at, at first glance, um, things like that. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, like where, where did you get your epistemological beliefs from, right? Like, okay, so, you know, you should only believe something if it's reliable. Okay, why do you believe that? Like, okay, you have to know that your belief source is reliable in order to be justified in believing something. Let's say that's your premise, right? Okay, and how do you know that? What's the justification for believing that? You know, okay, uh, I don't know. It just seemed right to me. Oh, no, you can't, you can't say that, right? You first have to verify that intuitions are reliable before you say that according to itself. So, um, and you just realize like, um, yeah, no, the people who think that they're criticizing intuition, I keep saying who think that they're criticizing intuition because like, um, 
I don't know what their alternative theory is of what they themselves are doing. Like, do you like do you think about things intellectually? And when you think about things intellectually, do things seem correct to you? And then do you believe those things or do you believe something else that doesn't seem correct to you? Like if you if you're claiming to be criticizing intuitions, I'd like, you know, how do you avoid them? Because I don't know how you're avoiding believing the things that seem correct to you when you think about that. Well, let me pause here for just a minute. So we've been going for about an hour and a half. And some people like Rob Wiblin has the idea that you should just have like five hour podcasts and really get into as much detail as you can. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I tend to think that an hour and a half is probably pushing a lot of people's uh, stamina and attention span. So I guess I'm tempted to, even though I realize I've pulled a lot of threads there and they're, and yeah. people who are not familiar with your work on this area, or at least other philosophic works on intuitionism, are gonna may feel puzzled by some of the things you've you've just said. So I'll just say, look, there's a, there's more in the book, and then he wrote two other books. One on basically, you have one book on intuitionism applied to epistemology, and one book on intuitionism applied to ethics. So if you really want the full package, um, you can go back and read this. You can spend a lot of time thinking about this kind of thing. Um, but is that your sense that we should sort of wrap up for now and call it a day? And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else you're. What else you got going today either? So or if you're getting. No, I mean I'm not running out of time, but we might be running out of patience for the readers, for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know I can come back. Well, maybe that's the way to do it because, like I said, I mean this is a. I really like this book for one thing. And I hope that people, I hope that it's successful. I hope that lots of people buy it and read it and give it away for other people to read. Um, as somebody who's not in academic philosophy, I thought it was, but who's read a fair amount of philosophy. I thought it was really inter consistently interesting, consistently helpful, even where I'm, I came away thinking, I don't, I'm not sure I am following you on this point, like souls. Okay. Like I don't, I really, you would have to, I'm not sure about the souls stuff in your book. Sorry, but, um, like soul. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, you know, that quotation where um, Joe Biden said he was talking to Putin and he said, I, I looked into your eyes and I think you don't have a soul. <laughs> uh, so that would be like you. Yes. You would do that to everyone. <laughs> you have no soul. Uh, yeah, I would probably point out that there's a different use of the, of the term soul that I would buy into pretty readily, <laughs> but that's not what you're talking about in the book. Um, so, you know, but what, I, you know, what, I'm, what I'm saying is even where I'm not quite sure I'm following you or I want to follow you to a certain place, I, it's really interesting. And, you know, often I'll think that I'm not quite sure what you're doing or where you're going. And in the end, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes a lot of sense. And so I do, you know, I recommend it because it's accessible to people. Any, basically, anybody who has an interest in philosophy, these issues of free will, God, knowledge, how do we know what we know, uh, what, you know, what is the justification for our beliefs, anything like that is going to find this book really interesting and really accessible. But like I said, it's 300 pages that are not full of fluff and filler. So, <laughs> you know, it's not like you're not just going to breeze through it in three or four hours. Um, if you want to get a lot out of it. So, I mean, you, you got to sit down and pay attention and actually read, read what's in the book. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But that's, to me, that's like, this is praise, right? This is, this is all good stuff about the book and why you should get it. Um, so thanks for coming on the show and thanks for doing the book. Uh, just a quick note on contacts. 
your main website, which by the way, I think you, you put on some selections from the book as kind of a preview. Um, I don't know how much you put on there, but the main website is owl232.net. That's O-W-L, like the bird, owl232.net. You also have a blog, which is fakenoose.net. That's fake, N-O-U-S, like mind, .net. Is there any other major way that people should try to try to get a hold of your work? Or is that uh, it? That's the main thing. Um, if you, you know, like on my main website, there's a link to the blog, you know, so from okay. Owl232. And um, I don't know, I have some videos that are posted on YouTube. Some of those are entertaining. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yep. And, thanks uh, for having me. It's been fun. This has been the Self and Society podcast. Our guest has been philosopher Michael Humer, author of Knowledge, Reality, and Value. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Mm-hmm.